0: Kia ora! Ni hao! Hello! Welcome to the Chiwi Journal podcast. I'm your host, Camille Yang. On the show, I interview global citizens who follow a unique path to build a better future and share stories and tips they learned along the way. Our conversations are focused on culture observations, technology trends, career development, and philosophy. My guest today is Joe Bug. He is a partner at Tribe AI. MA candidate at Georgetown's International Business and Policy Program. He leads the e-residency program at the Republic of Estonia and has been a mentor to a startup accelerator focused on the defense solution in the U.S. He has been to more than 50 countries, lived and worked on 3.5 continents, and helped with many remote work visa and city-building projects. We discussed the e residency program, SDZ Alliance City Building Projects, China USA Relations, Tips for Nomadic Lifestyle, and more. I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Sounds good. This is actually my first podcast interview.
0: Really? So, uh, oh my god! Yeah. Such an honor. <laughs> That's great. Okay, welcome to the show, Joe. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: Why not we start from your career? <laughs> Let's start from the very beginning because I know you've done so many projects.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I always tell people when they ask about my career, really, it, it really got kicked off when I first moved to Silicon Valley right after my undergrad. I, I did a couple things, but most notably, I went to Draper University, which was really formative, and I worked for Tim Draper on some projects, mm-hmm. uh, and then I went to Gigster as an early employee, um, so right after they graduated YC, as uh, when I joined as the ninth employee, um, and then I was with them through the Series B, which was um, amazing, You know, kind of seeing a company go uh, through hyper growth. We did on-demand software development with a network of freelancers, so it was also really interesting to see the community aspect of that, which I think is really really important. And then I went to Germany, went to run a business for Rocket Internet, which is kind of hybrid VC slash company builder, or, or may, maybe the, the appropriate analogy is like a startup studio. And then mm-hmm. after that, I went to work for the Estonian government, running a team for uh, eResidency, their kind of flagship digital initiative. I led BizDev. Right now, I'm doing I'm doing some part-time stuff and actually a bunch of random projects, mainly with um, SDC Alliance, which has a really cool take on sustainable approach is to alleviating urbanization informality in the developing world uh, and has a pilot project in Ethiopia that that I've been helping out a little bit work with, which is uh, why I'm in Kenya and headed to Ethiopia in a week and a half, two weeks.
0: What brought you to have the interest to the interaction between technology and the policy?
1: Yeah, I've long like had, had some interest in... Maybe not policy, but but government broadly. Like when I was when I was a kid, I went through a phase where I wanted to be a speechwriter um, because I thought that would be really interesting. But for for me, really working for the Estonian government was an eye opener. So when I first went, I didn't really think of it as working for a government at all. They kind of even the e residency. Team build themselves as a startup within the government, and they they definitely you know acted like it. We had our own board. We we moved very quickly relative to other agencies. Um, mm-hmm. But being there, I saw just how critical the intersection of you know government was because you know Estonia is it's one point three million people, and the policies are. You know the policies and interaction are a lot easier to see. You know, kind mm-hmm. of the causal line, right? Rather than you know, compared to the U.S., where what the federal government does is like so diffuse. I mean, it's it's hard to tell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so big. But but with Estonia, you can you can you can really feel it, right? And so that that definitely made me. Understand like how critical this was. And then, you know, just, just kind of being in, in that world, I'd, you know, been a fan of decentralization and kind of innovation in, in all its regards. And I thought government is like the big the biggest business in the world that hasn't been disrupted yet, right?
0: I say, yeah. So biology, hey mentioned the e resident program at Estonia. It's very fascinating. What was your thoughts on why they launched that program first and uh, what their motivation? Be- behind that program?
1: So I think there's may, maybe just a little bit of background, just in just in case. I know people listening to this are probably aware, but just in case. Um, the, the idea behind the e-residency was basically at, at the beginning, in, in Estonia, about 99% of government services are online. So the idea was, you know, since they're online, you know, the, the infrastructure allowing access to them is, is quite scalable. And again, like, you know, if you're talking about technical systems, there's there's no reason to only scale to 1.3 million people or, you know, your your population, right? That's You know, that's that's a total arbitrary limitation when you're talking about, you know, software. So the idea was, okay, you know, if we give other people access to Estonia, what will happen? And basically so it was kind of an open-ended experiment, and basically more than you know, 60,000, 70,000 people at this time mm-hmm. have signed up. And the main use case today is for people to start businesses in Estonia and run them from anywhere in the world. So if you are in Russia, Ukraine, a- anywhere outside kind of the EU market, and you want to get access to the EU without physically moving, it's a great kind of leveler. As to why they were the ones to do it first, I think Estonia was able to do this because they had kind of made this bet on you know, going digital as a government some 20 years prior to the launch of e-residency, basically since independence. So for them, it was not a whole ordeal, you know, digitizing services and then launching this program. It was, you know, 99% of it was already there. They just issued cards on top of an existing system. And it was, I mean, if anything, it was more of a policy change than a, you know, than a technology change, right?
0: Do you think the small country will have an advantage of for launching this kind of program. You know, for New Zealand, they launched the Global Impact Visa, Mm -hmm. Edmund Hillary Fellowship. So they granted 3,000 visas to people all around the world to come to New Zealand to build a better future because New Zealand is relatively small compared to US or Australia. So do you think that would be a trending for small countries to take the advantage to do this technology transformation?
1: Yeah, I, I 100% think that I, I see, I, I, I'm not sure if you've read sovereign individual, but I see us coming into the kind of that, that face of the world where, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's much more about where individuals have much more Ability and scale than than in the past, and individual countries. You know, we're not so tied to industrialization and that kind of thing, where you need thousands and thousands of workers in a factory, uh, enable you know to, to produce something. Now, you know, one one guy with a laptop can make something pretty incredible. To, to me, the the most emblematic sign of this was the WhatsApp acquisition. I mean, I think they had like under 50, 50 employees and sold for what was it, sixteen billion dollars or something, right? I mean, it's it's pretty incredible what a small team can accomplish these days. So I think that that applies both to, to small countries. However, I will say that you know I, I caveat this because you know there, there still are some benefits from having large countries. or, so, you know, for for instance, you know, if you're an entrepreneur starting a company in the United States, for instance, mm-hmm. you get access to one single market with pretty similar rules, unless you're in you know healthcare or some very regulated space. You know, similar rules, yeah. uh, similar business culture, one language that you have to deal with across the whole country. Um, whereas you know, if you're if you're um, Estonia, it's it's okay selling into the EU, and you can do it in English and some places but the EU single market is not as you know as, is not as much of a single market as the uh, as they would like us to believe.
0: What about the tax and the healthcare? Cuz for me I'm originally from China and I lived in New Zealand but now I'm based in the UK but sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like I want to do my digital nomad life but the tax or Healthcare problem—that would be the challenges for me.
1: You know, I think kind of the the updating of systems that we've depended on governments for um, needs to happen. So, uh, Safety Wing, I think, has done a great job of you know doing insurance insurance really focused on nomads. However, oh, yeah. you know their their insurance policies mm-hmm. are still centered around kind of short term. Travelers, you know, it, it's you know, quote unquote, short term. It might be for mm-hmm. years, but it's going to be tough if you have like a chronic illness like cancer because they're they're just not built for that, and nor is any company that I've seen. Um, so I think you know, functions like that, functions like social security taxes that are you know maybe not intrinsically tied, but but have you know have very strong ties to state agencies or essentially are subsidized that by them will either need to be updated uh, by governments or changed for the private sector. Um, and I hope nomadism kind of pushes this forward. However, I, I do worry a little bit that there will be um you know, in, in every period of innovation and disruption, there's well disruption, right? And that is unpleasant for lots of people. Mm-hmm. And so I think governments are not disruptors. And I think often people act like they want them to be, but if they were, I think they would be very angry. I mean, just consider if you were you know you're you're in the UK if the NHS changed its rules every 6 weeks as to who is eligible i think people would be furious right i don't think yeah. they'd be happy i think they'd be like dominic cummings and these guys have gone nuts that's that's kind of that's kind of where where i'm at with things i think there's an opportunity for entrepreneurs who want to basically recreate the stack for governance or government products, uh, online. And you could even argue that companies like an Uber, for instance, have basically done this, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, public transport was something that you might expect, you know, Government to provide through larger infrastructure. And now you take Uber pools, or you know, maybe not during COVID times, but you know, in, in the past you take Uber pools and you basically have subverted, you know, public infrastructure via a private company and a network of freelancers and contractors, right?
0: Have you noticed any startups? They are working on these infrastructures. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I think you can see it like, you know, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into certain things, but you, you see something like a forward medical, right? Which is basically kind of redefined finding um, the primary care Uh, And I I see that as kind of taking a step in the direction of like providing a a service that in many other places, the government would be expected to basically provide, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You see in the United States, private security companies, I mean, it's not as hot a topic anymore to talk about Blackwater and these ones, but there are still many private security companies that basically have outsourced the, you know, quote unquote, monopoly of power Mm -hmm. that states usually have. And then I I think you can also talk about the Charter City movement, which is, you know, no, to me, this is the most – I don't know if extreme is the is the right word, but this is like kind of the embodiment of like, okay, we need to fundamentally re, reimagine governance and, and try and recreate it in the modern age without being too disruptive.
0: Yeah, exactly. So what other initiatives you've been helping global citizens adapt to today's digital world, like Columbia remote working visa and the opia city building project? I was
1: lucky enough to um, to chat with a friend, uh, Alana. So uh, Alana and I know each other for, gosh, five five plus years ago from Draper University. Um, she is a entrepreneur in Colombia, from Colombia. Um, and she asked me about e-residency, and we ended yeah. up talking and coming to um, the idea, you know, there the the Colombian government's digital infrastructure isn't in the same place as Estonia's were. We thought it didn't make as much sense to basically launch an e residency program, and the value prop is just different, right? Mm. Um, however, we basically pitched, and it it took you know more than a, more than a year of meetings and convincing wow. government <laughs> officials and educating them as to like mm. what digital nomads are, but like. Uh, a, a new visa class that hopefully, hopefully will be coming out soon.
0: Oh, OK. Yeah. Um,
1: and then other projects. Yeah, I the, the SD, the SDZ Alliance work, um, like I mentioned, going up to Ethiopia with these folks, I highly recommend for, for people who are interested in the intersection of like charter cities and social good. I highly recommend checking out, you know, SDZ Alliance which, which is uh, the organization that I'm that I'm volunteering with they they're doing some some really cool stuff
0: okay I'll put the link in the show notes what's the process look like for you to do this city building project
1: so I'm coming in way at the end they've been working for years they have worked with the Ethiopian government as well as many other stakeholders to figure out ways um, to better incorporate people from the informal sector and urban migrants into the formal economy. So, I, I mean, uh, I, hopefully, you know, you're from China, so so you can probably sympathize, like, mm-hmm. urbanization is happening incredibly rapidly. And the infrastructure of many countries is just not built to deal with it, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Already, there's there's issues with power, there's issues with water, sewage, you know, all, all, these, all these kind of things that we probably take mm-hmm. for granted in the West, as like government functions just working, they don't always exist. And especially, especially at the Mid market and the low end, and also the issue with the formal and informal sector. You get you get weird things where you know it's it's tough for people. You know they they come from the rural areas. They're not you know technically allowed to work in a city or something. You know I, I'm talking very very broadly, and you know this this happens all the time. And then they get stuck in the informal sector, um, and the jobs are lower paid. It's harder you know it's harder hours, etc. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So the the idea behind the project in ethiopia is basically doing this as a pilot and seeing can we do and you know quote unquote sme city um, focused on building small and medium enterprises that kind of boost the economy incorporate people into the formal sector and start creating a real tax base, because that's, that's the other problem with the informal sector and, you know, kind of the gray economy that exists is that candidly, I I wouldn't tell this to to most governments, but like, I don't blame lots of people in many of these countries for not wanting to pay taxes. Like if you're, you know, if you're not getting clean water, there's no police service, there's no whatever. It's kind of like, well, what, what am I paying for here? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but, but however, that that does you know it, it presents a conundrum, right? Because if you have if you're you know say a mayor of a of a city and you have no tax base, how are you going to supply service? So you're caught in this catch twenty two, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like there's there's almost no one who's paying taxes, and then so you have no money to supply services, and then you know it it creates this you know it creates this problem over and over. So um, this this idea is you know. Creating, creating basically an SEZ, you know, and I'm I'm oversimplifying here, but creating a, you know a zone where to to bring in more FDI with the idea of you know integrating people into the formal economy.
0: It reminds me about a lot of street vendors in China. They use WeChat Pay, which I don't think the government can track the transaction to to get the tax. So it's very interesting to see a lot of yeah. people, they, they go to the city urban area and they just use digital payment like without a trace by the government, and they start a business. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite interesting, and I I admire people like that a lot, right? I mean, the search for a better life and hustling and working hard, I think are are all laudable traits. It's just um, it's it's hard if you're a government to kind of escape this trap, right? Where you're you know mm-hmm. you're you're kind of in this in between stages of you know developed True. and developing and and whatnot, right? So
0: what what draws you to the seventeen twenty nine community? How did you know this website?
1: I mean, honestly, biology. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just just following biology, honestly. Uh, I, I've you know, I've I've watched some of his talk. I think there was the I think there was the talk at YC some years ago, and I think that was the one that really that really hooked me. And then I had seen him, he, you know, he had talked a bit about e residency. Uh, so of course, you know, he was kind of on the radar. But I was really, you know, from from that, and then the mm. kind of intersection of charter Mm -hmm. cities and the stuff Bology was talking about I found I found really fascinating. That that's how I that's how I saw that. And of course he had I'm sure it was in his profile or he tweeted about it or something and then I signed up.
0: What's your thought on the network nations and the cloud city first and then the land later. Do you think it's achievable in ten years' time based on your experience?
1: i actually I actually have mixed feelings on this. So this is probably this is probably where I differ from a lot of people in this space where I'm much more bullish on um one developing world and two physical stuff. So I think like, You know, I'm, I'm all about cognitive uploading and like, um, you know, transhumanism and and this stuff. However, like for the time being, the vast majority of us still have physical bodies and it's important for, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your viewpoint. And, and it's important that you know it's it's important to remember like and it's part of the reason why I like to travel so much is like getting out of the comfort zone because I think a lot of people will complain about you know London or SF or whatever but like they're not that bad right <laughs> like you know relative you know relative to like many other places in the rest yeah. of the world like they're not that bad and so I. Um, I guess I I worry that building online kind of neglects moving fast enough in physical spaces, and I also just you know having worked in government, mm-hmm. it's very stodgy, and I think having physical presences is is really important for establishing yourself if you want to eventually be you know considered like a real nation or territory or something uh, in the future. So like thinking thinking long term, I think having physical territory is important for that, um, and then. Again, I'm much more focused on like the developing world, just because I think that the delta between like, you know, a startup city in the US that is outcompetes like Miami or SF is like yeah. pretty hard to build. Um, you know, and there's there's a lot, you know, like cul-de-sac, for instance, is is really cool. You know, h- how much better will cul-de-sac really be than like the alternative than the alternate choices someone in the United States have, whereas like building a charter city or a startup city in the developing world, like even even the bare minimum stuff needs to be addressed, right? Like I see SECs in Nigeria, for instance, where it's like one of the main selling points is having reliable electricity. It's like the the delta between like the the potential improvement is way bigger in the developing world. And so I'm a little bit more excited about that.
0: I see, yeah. Because if you build the online world and you don't have electricity or infrastructure like set up is so hard it's your, your city probably just gone like immediately.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, I also think if you, if you don't move to that phase, then it's, it gets a lot more confused with like existing online communities. So for instance, like I'm on hacker news every day and I love being on hacker news and like, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's some forums and stuff that, that I like going on. And I feel like, you know, I feel strong connections to many of those communities or like with like discords, but I think there's something very different about the physical aspect of living mm-hmm. together um, and building communities in the real world that I think is just you know, really, really hard to move from online um to, to the real work. So I think the sooner people move to that, the, the better it'll be.
0: You just mentioned the transhuman. I, I know you are very interested in sci-fi stories <laughs> and movies. So what's your favorite one?
1: So total recency bias. I just read Stand on Zanzibar, which is, oh gosh, like 50 years old. What's that? It, it's from this uh, this um, author, John Brunner. And it basically, I mean, it's just a fascinating book. And I, I don't want to spoil it, but it, it kind of predicts like, you know things like being able to change. Um, it depicts it, it, it depicts like population booms and and busts. I should say it depicts um, basically how consumerism uh, moves over time, and it's it's really fascinating to see because actually when I when I read the book, I hadn't realized it was from so long ago. And even like reading it now, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like I, I can't believe this guy is like so on point and, and with all this stuff. And then and then I looked, and it's from fifty years ago. And I was like, "Wow, this is uh, this is incredible." Other than that, I think my favorite is probably um, the th- the Three Body Problem series.
0: Oh yeah. By the Chinese writer, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, which which was just incredible. And then when I when I was a kid, I think I read every Ender's Game and related book uh, that was you know canon and not canon that that I could find. Um, so I, I like tons of sci-fi.
0: I just had I recently had a discussion with my friend about transfer the brand to some machine like Neuralink, this type of thing. Are you willing to make this? sacrifice we'll say Mm. sacrifice your physical body but let your thoughts live forever
1: yeah i mean it it kind of depends what kind of infrastructure there is and this this is why like very long term i am i am much more bullish on virtual worlds because i think like you know the the human body is like super inefficient and i think (laughs) i'm really excited you know i i mean i'm really excited that we're now in a time where we can like influence our biology but to me the the ultimate idea is like you know being able to upload your mind and then you know, instead of physical bodies, you know that that we're born into, you can just like rent a body, like Uber for robots, and you yeah. just download your yourself into a robot uh, mm-hmm. somewhere in the world or some new experience. And I think that opens up a, a lot more avenues for humanity. So, I, I mean, yes, I'm I, I would definitely do that. I'm already a member of a cryonics facility, um, but that's more of that's more of a hedge. Uh, for for wow. you know when I when I die right um, yeah but, but yeah <laughs> but but yeah very I'm very keen on on all that
0: great to know yeah let's go back to the physical world <laughs> I know you're very uh, focused on the geo policy you mentioned your role. As a mentor to a startup accelerator focused on defense solution in the U.S., would you mind sharing a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, well, I'll mention before that in Estonia, I uh, I had a friend that that I helped his company, and they do um, deep fake detection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so when I came back to the when when I came back to the U.S. at the beginning of COVID, um, I moved to D.C. and started a masters at Georgetown, and I was looking for volunteer opportunities. So I linked up with this accelerator that basically commercializes um, technology from government labs. So I've been working with a the team there and I won't, you know, I, I I won't talk about too much about, you know, what, what that does, but I think, you know, I think supporting the U S and Western governments are really important in this day and age. And I think that's been something that's been undervalued and neglected by Silicon Valley for too long. I have a politics aside for, for whatever you care about, but I have a lot of mm-hmm. uh, admiration for Palmer Luckey and his mission with, with Andrew. I think he's brought a lot of spotlight and, uh, resources and you know, kind of Silicon Valley thinking to the to the defense world, and you know, got a lot of more people engaged, which I find, which which I think is great.
0: You know, the there is an increased tense between China and the U.S. I just uh, just worry about the the relationship between these two powerful countries that maybe lead us to a. Doom
1: the future if there's a war. I'll try and be politically correct here, but my my basic my basic opinion is that like uh, there's there's this thing called the Thucydides trap, and I'm I'm not sure if I 100% agree with it, but basically it's this idea of like you know when there's a waning power and a rising power, uh, you know. Or a, China and the U.S. right there's there's an increased likelihood uh, of conflict right because you know someone like China is saying well why don't we have a seat at the table for all these mm-hmm. things and you know uh, we're 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 you know we're one of the big boys now yeah. um, you know we should you know we should be able to act like the U.S. or you know Britain or whoever does you know the the big powers are. They don't think they've lost their power, right? And they don't want to acknowledge upstarts. So, um, anyways, I am especially worried in this period we are we're in right now. At least from a Western perspective, my my impression is that China probably thinks it's in a much better position relative to where it's been in the last couple of years, vis-a-vis you know the United States, just from you know the from how covid was handled and i mean i should shouldn't say united states broadly the the west right from from how covid was handled especially but even like economic growth and and political satisfaction let's say i think the real danger comes when someone when so say China underestimates the U.S. and overestimates itself, and potentially vice versa, right? So China might think that the United States is weaker than than we are, and think that they're stronger than they are, um, just because there's always an asymmetry of information, right? Doing something like taking Taiwan right now might be disastrous because it could you know, trigger a full scale war. For, for for me, China is probably the the biggest global threat in in my. Uh, in my opinion, I mean, from their treatment of, uh, you know, basically the genocide that that they're engaged in uh, East Turkestan, uh, to you know the actions that they take with illegal fishing, to their rampant theft of intellectual property, I, I think. China has proven themselves as not willing to be part of the real global world order and a good global citizen. Um, And my personal opinion is that they should basically be totally cut off and ostracized. But I understand that that's a hard opinion when so many people have been making money off of China for so long.
0: And, you know, China has uh, hugely invested in Africa when you are working in Ethiopia, have you talked to the local people? Like, what's their perspective towards China?
1: Yeah, so I, I haven't been to Ethiopia physically yet, so I haven't had those sorts of yeah. on-the-ground cover In Kenya, um, I think there's... Honestly, the conversation I, I've had has been varied from anger that because... Often what China does is they they offer to pay for something and then, you know, let, let's say a big infrastructure project, the costs are quite high for what they're getting and maybe you don't even need it. So, like, for instance, the train from Nairobi to Mombasa is at much lower capacity than expected um, and therefore, like, probably not going to be worth what it was what it was supposed to. Uh, the, the Kenyan government is still going to have to pay for it. Um, and they also use all their own people. Right. Um, so so they're not employing that many locals so I think there's a lot of animosity because of that however I've also seen the other side of the coin where people are just happy that someone is you know investing in them you know on on more of like business terms rather than like you know donation oh so sad you're poor like here's a billion dollars it's much more like one to one like you know hey this is a business venture in, in in my mind more of a more of a framing rather than rather than actually anything real I guess um yeah i I am pretty concerned about China and Africa. And I think like, you know, I, I won't say anything negative. I think China, China has done. And sorry, when I, when I refer to China in this way, I mean, the CCP, I don't mean the Chinese people, just to make that clear. I think China has done like a very admirable job overall in, in the stewardship of their economy. Um, and actually a brilliant job, I, I should say. Uh, however, I worry a lot for the world that they've done this because I, as I mentioned, I don't think they're a good uh, global player. I think they're looking out for themselves, which is totally fine, um, but a problem when it comes to the detriment of the rest of the world.
0: So when we built the cloud country, do you think the ideology also will impact the cloud community? Are we going to like copy what happened in the physical world and bring them to the online world?
1: Of course, I mean humans are humans, right? Uh, I think I think yeah, ideology yeah. And, and personal beliefs will always uh, have a have a huge role in you know how institutions are sh- are shaped.
0: You know? So that would be a huge problem we need to solve.
1: Yeah, I, I actually I actually am not so sure because I I don't worry so much about like the average Chinese person. What I worry about is like the political ruling class. I I don't think the average Chinese person like you know, they're, they've been happy that the economy has grown, but I don't think they, you know, are actively thinking of America's enemies or thinking they're in a new cold war or, you know, engaging in rampant IP theft. Like, I think that's very much a state run thing. Um, so I, I'm actually not so worried about like individual companies. And it, actually, I think like, You know, exposure, I think, is one of the best things that can happen for the world. It's like cross-culture because everyone has something to learn from others. Mm.
0: So among all 50 countries you have traveled and lived, have you encountered any interesting culture shock?
1: Yeah. In in terms of culture shock, I think the biggest for me was probably when when I was a kid, I went to Russia. Uh, Sorry, kid, a a teenager, Mm. I went to Russia. And to me, that was probably the biggest culture shock that that I've had Mm. uh, just because it was, it was the first big international trip I'd I'd ever taken to a non-Western European country. Um, And it was also in this era where like Russia, Russia was like developed. It wasn't like the crazy early, it wasn't like the crazy nineties, right? Like the wall hadn't just come down. This was in the, oh gosh, when would this be the late uh, 2000 and something, right? Not 2010 yet. Um, But, but it was really, it was really fascinating for me to get exposure to a country that like in reading old books in in the U S and kind of the you know, education I got growing up, Russia was kind of the boogeyman, right? Um, And and I think, you know, (laughs) <laughs> Boogeymen can be important as like uh, levers for for politicians and to galvanize you know nationalism and and to bring a country together. But it was a very eye opening thing for me that I was like, oh, these are just normal yeah. people. Like the vast majority of people in every country are just like normal people. They want to have you know they they want to have <laughs> families. They want to live happy lives. They want to you know you know like um, humans humans are like semi similar all true. over right um, in in like these fundamental ways. And I think that you know that trip was. Very eye-opening and a, and a good reminder. Right? So,
0: what's your top three tips for people who wants to choose to live a mobile life and do remote working in the future, based on your experience?
1: I, I think getting getting comfortable with like doing things alone and being by yourself is really important. I mean, sorry, I, I say that if you want to do that by yourself. If you want to travel with with friends and stuff, that that's also totally fine. Um, however, most people are you know you know kind of by themselves yeah. when they do the nomad thing. I mean, that's yeah, nomads, no meds. Um, and I, I think that's really important because I think a lot of people get, you know, um, lonely and homesick and whatever. And I think part of that is due to one lack of community, which is totally true. Uh, you know, having community, it's great, but there's also something to be said about also being comfortable with, you know, going to a restaurant by yourself and, and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, just, just being happy, being on your own. Other things I would, I would say it's like, you know, embrace, embrace the ambiguity, like, you know, think, think of it like, like an adventure, like going to get money is an adventure, trying new things at a restaurant and ordering off menu is an adventure. Like, um, you know, just just have fun with it. Right. And don't don't take it so seriously. Um, and then I think um, I, I think this is some, something uh, one of your previous guests Had mentioned, but like after a while, you know, you you will kind of gravitate towards hubs, anyways. And I find myself and a lot of the people I know who have been, you know, more nomadic for a long time do that. So I, I often go back to Estonia to see friends there, or to Berlin, uh, you know, or or to London, right? And it's kind of you know random hubs that I'm comfortable. I know the neighborhoods and I know the the Airbnbs, and then um, you know in then I'll also take some months to, to explore new places. So yeah, but I I highly recommend the nomadic remote work life for, for folks. I think it's really, really important um to, to get out there and experience it and live something closer to being the local. You know, don't stay at the Hilton for two weeks, right? Like get an Airbnb in a real neighborhood and like talk to people.
0: Yeah, it's very important. Yeah. I think once you are on the digital nomad life and you can never go back to your normal life. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's my experience. I so. Yeah, I think so too. And also, you know, I, I mentioned the, the Hilton and I'll, I'll make fun of, you know, the, the classic business travel. Yes. But also, if you're, on the, if you're on the other side of it, don't just get stuck in the co-working spaces that are entirely expat nomads like you. Mm-hmm. Go and meet like real people. Yeah. Sorry, you know, everyone's real people. But <laughs> go and meet go and meet <laughs> go and meet real locals. Yeah. True. I mean, don't go to Thailand and only meet, you know, Brits and, and French people and Americans who are who are all doing the same thing. Go and go and meet actual Thai people. Mm, yeah. I see.
0: Yeah. So What gets you most excited about the future?
1: Oh, so many things. I think, you know, like like I mentioned, I see. I I kind of see humanity at like being at this inflection point where we're, we're, you know, if we're not, if we're not already there, we're very close to the day when like Mm -hmm. we can accelerate our own evolution, which I think is really, really exciting. Um, in the sense, like, you know, traits like your, you know, your, your genetic traits are, you know, basically predestination and, you know, it's, it's Mm -hmm. luck, you know, the, the place you're born and, you know, how tall you are, you know, you're all, all, the all these things. And I think, genetic editing will allow us to basically evolve as a species um, and take Mm -hmm. control of that. And I think there's, there's lots of pitfalls there, lots of very big ones, but I think that's something I find really, really fascinating and, you know, basically world changing. Um, And then the idea of hopefully, you know, I think, I think the climate, I think the climate crisis has gotten to a point Mm -hmm. where it's just like, you know, It's finally, I hope, at a point where people are willing to embrace out of the box solutions. So, you know, I see more, I see more startups in, you know, in the nuclear space. It seems like more governments are, you know, starting to care, and I, I hope it moves us to a point where, you know, we we finally get over like our hysteria of nuclear energy and these sorts of things, and can Mm. move on, you know, on on that on that vein. And then finally, you know, cognitive uploading, I think, is another really fascinating point and kind of the evolution. You know, I mean. To to me, the evolution of humanity in in every regard is is what's really interesting uh, in the long term future, and I think mm. that's part of the reason I'm I'm really interested in the charter cities, is because, um, you know, I, I see that as enabling better governance, which will allow us to move towards like a shared era of prosperity for the world faster.
0: I see. Is there any example of the charter city? You could explain a little bit more.
1: So there's there's Prospera, there's Cuidad Ciudad uh, Morazan. Um, basically the, the idea of the idea fundamentally of charter city, I mean, there were, there was kind of the, the Paul Romer idea, uh, back in the day, which was, um, you know, you would, you would go to a state that's, I don't, I don't want to say failing, but like not, not as successful as it wants to be. So like think Honduras things, places with low GDP and a third country would come, you know, say Canada and they would say, okay, we're going to have, you know, this little zone of a couple miles by a couple miles and here you know, it's going to be our regulations that, that, you know, kind of go, we're going to have our government, our judgment system. So mm-hmm. the idea being that like, it would basically allow foreign multinationals and companies to flourish in this area where before they would like, you know, they would get caught in corruption in a, you know, in the court system where people could be bribed yeah. or, you know, people would steal their stuff or, you know, wh- whatever, all, all the legal ambiguity or, or things that come with, you know, being in a, zone without without good governance and kind of have a third party administer a zone now the idea has evolved where it's much more about you know public private partnerships and private entities so it's you know uh an, an individual goes to goes to a country and and says like hey uh I want to acquire you know this part of this plot of land um and use it for xyz purposes uh and i want to have my own arbitration my own rules we'd still obey your constitution so like the highest level of the law and like you know criminal code is according to you uh but everything else kind of we we get to set or in partnership right um which which i think is a really interesting
0: so final question what's one thing you'd like to achieve this year
1: uh, graduating Georgetown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so fingers crossed.
0: So it's a one year program. Yeah, or...
1: yeah it ends in December.
0: Oh, okay, great. Okay, good luck with that. And thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for sharing everything.
1: My pleasure. All right, ciao.